another. It's one of the most commonly used phrases throughout the, uh, the New Testament. And in the original language um, that the New Testament was written in, the word, um, uh, the word one another is not two separate words. It's one word put together, which is this word, uh, lay loan. And it's used a hundred times in 94 uh, New Testament verses. It's used in a range of different contexts, um, but about a third of the one another statements or the uh, lay loan statements throughout the New Testament are all about loving one another, which is what we'll be speaking about today. About one third are about unity in the church and about 15% are about humility towards others. Um, I don't know what percentage that leaves at the end of that. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but that's a uh, a general summary of what many of the one another statements are in the the New Testament. This is a, uh, a common phrase and throughout these eight weeks of going through this series, we're going to be uh uh, we're going to be seeking to grow in one anothering or a lay loaning, a lay loaning well. Um, this year, our vision focus, as you, uh, many of you would know if you were here at the beginning of the year, is to see a church where everyone can find a home. We want to be a church where we find family and experience community no matter who we are. We want to be a church where we know one another deeply and share in each other's triumphs and tragedies. And so to accomplish this, we need to know how to one another well and what to do with the one another statements throughout the New Testament. So over eight weeks, we'll be looking at some of these one another statements in the New Testament, along with some life group material that you can grab from the welcome desk or grab online as we uh, journey through this together as a church. And today, we're going to be starting with the most important foundational one another statement, which is to love one another. As we just said, about a third of the one another statements in the New Testament are about loving one another. And in John 13, 34, to 35, we see Jesus saying these words, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right here, just in two verses, we see Jesus using this phrase, love one another, three different times. And so it's very, very clear here that Christians are not to be known by their political perspectives or some good behavior or their theological knowledge of scripture or their ability to debate Uh, with atheists, Christians are to be known by their love for one another. And to start off our time together, what I'm going to get you to do is to do a little activity. Um, I just want you to turn to the person next to you right now, and I want you to look deep in their eyes. And I want you to say, I love you. Now, I want you to turn to the person on your other side, your second choice, and I want you to do the same thing. Look deep in their eyes and say, I love you. (laughs) If you're joining with us online and you're joining with other people, feel free to do that as well. Can I just say there are two very sad people here up the front who had no one say, I love you. So can we just say together, I love you to these 
Very beautiful. It warms my heart. As you were doing this, who felt a little awkward or strange? Many people in the room were feeling a, uh, a little awkward. Even as I looked at you and I was phrasing this, uh, what you needed to do, I could see that some of you were a little bit hesitant to, uh, to do this. Part of the reason that you probably felt strange doing this is because of our society's preconceived thoughts of what love really means. Part of the reason you might have felt strange as well is because we don't have very many distinguishing words in our English language about what we mean when we say, I love you. So for example, I love my wife, I love my son, I love my dogs, I love the blues. But if you were going to ask me which of these I loved the most, well, the answer should be my wife. But it's a little bit of a weird question because really, I love all of them differently. My love for the blues is not the same as my love for my wife or for my son. And in our society today, we portray love primarily as something that is a personal feeling inside. Generally speaking, we associate the word love with the romantic form of love, unless we're specifically saying otherwise. So someone might say to you, I love you, but as a friend. They are trying to distinguish between the romantic form of love and the way that we talk about love, uh, particularly in songs and movies and things like that, is as a selfish thing where we seek to gain something from another person. When I was preparing for this, my mind kept going back to this particular song called What is Love? Some of the lyrics of this. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love? No, I don't know why you're not fair. I give you my love, but you don't care. So what is right and what is wrong? Give me a sign. What is love? Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. These lyrics, they are talking about our Western idea of what love is, but this song, it is all about singing and seeking to get some form of loving gratification for the person who is singing it. But in the original language of the New Testament, there are actually four different words that we all translate as love in the New Testament. One form of love is this word eros. This is where we get the word erotic. This is the romantic or sexual form of love. It's probably what we mean most in Western society when we speak about loving someone. But the next form of love in the original language is called storge love. It's not quite as pretty a word. And this is familial love. So this is the love that a family member has towards another family member. It's the type of love that I have towards my son or my parents or my siblings. It's a different form of love that's spoken about, but it's no less uh, insignificant than, uh, than eros. Then there's philia love, which is the love that friends have for one another. 
This is the type of love that we probably speak about much less than the other forms of love within our society. It's probably the reason that it felt a little bit strange to turn to someone next to you and tell them that you, uh, that you love them. People don't generally write songs about how much they love their friends. But once again, this is no less important than eros or storge love in Scripture. But the type of love that is considered considered as greater than all other forms of love is this final type of love, which is agape love. This is seen as the pinnacle, the greatest, the supreme version of all love, because this is unconditional love. Agape love, it expects nothing in return, and it is willing to give greatly for someone else's benefit. And agape love is the love that Jesus shows towards us on earth through going to the cross, but it's also the love that Jesus is calling us into here in, uh, in the Gospel of John when he is telling us to love one another. Jesus is telling us to agape one another, to unconditionally love one another. He's calling us into a radical form of love that is willing to give and doesn't require receiving uh, back. It's a love that goes past political ideologies or alliances. It's a love that is willing to give financially to others when they're in need. It's a love that's willing to sacrifice time to care for those in need. It's a love that turns the other cheek when you're being accused. And I have learned in the church that the ultimate sign of love is to love someone despite their state of origin following. (laughs) And I'm so grateful to be in a church where you all love me so much despite the fact that I support the the blues. (laughs) There's a... uh, (laughs) There's a later part of John's writing, not in this gospel account of John, but in another one of his letters, which expands on this command of Jesus to love one another. Uh, Some of you might be aware that John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and John wrote extensively more than any other New Testament writer on this particular topic of love. And in 1 John 4, 7 to 21, John tries to give more of a full picture of what agape love means and what it looks like to love one another unconditionally. So if you have your Bibles, this is where we'll be spending the rest of our time, in 1 John 4, 7 to 21. And just remember, every single time we see this word love, It is the word agape. It's unconditional love. It's greater than all the other forms of love. And so here it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The word love, which is agape love, unconditional love, this is repeated 27 times over these 14 verses. And the way that it speaks about love is by centering it primarily on Jesus and what Jesus was able to accomplish through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he displays this as the, uh, the ultimate example of what agape love should be for us to, uh, to follow. But not only is agape love something that Jesus demonstrated through his life, rather it is the very central characteristic of who he is. So to know God through Jesus is to know love personified itself. There is no rom-com movie that is the best place to, to see love displayed. In Jesus, it is where we see love displayed fully. But there is also mentioned, if you were paying attention, there was also mentioned something that comes against love and fights against it. There is something that diminishes love and takes away its power. The enemy of agape, unconditional love, is not hatred, which would have made uh, a bit of sense. It's not selfishness. It's not anger. But the enemy here to this form of love is its word fear. The way that love and fear are painted are as two opposing forces that are unable to exist with one another. It's almost like the greater you love, the more fear diminishes in your life. But on the other hand, the more that you fear, the less impact love has in your life. Now, generally, when we speak about fear in our world, we might think of things that we have a phobia of, things that we are afraid of. Earlier this week, I was sharing with some of our staff that, um, that I am deeply afraid of snakes. I hate snakes more than anything, um, and this is a fear I was told that I, am, uh, that I share with our children's and families coordinator, Cass, as well, and so if you want to bring her joy, bring a snake into work um, sometime. But one thing I was made aware of this past week is that for our kids' holiday club, there was this wonderful... Um, 
a wonderful uh, set made up in our breezeway over there. And in there, there were also two snake skins, which I wasn't aware of. But as soon as I became aware of these two snake skins, I was a little bit uh, fearful in my, uh, in my heart. Now, is this the kind of fear that is being spoken about here? Is it the phobia sort of fear? And if so, why does my dislike of snakes have anything to do with me not being able to love someone in an unconditional way? That seems a little bit strange. That shouldn't have any impact on what I do. Now, there's a couple of things here in verse 18, where it speaks about fear, that once again, our English language tends to get in the way of. Part of what verse 18 is speaking about is not fearing judgment, which is mentioned in verse 17, but it also goes further than that. Perhaps a better understanding of fear here is probably our, our understanding in English of anxiousness. What if we read this as perfect love casts out anxiousness? Now, I'm aware in our world today, in Australia, there are many people who struggle with anxiety in their life. And this is once again where our, our English language is not diverse enough and can struggle a little bit for us to understand things. So on the one hand, someone who... I want to, on the one hand, I want to make a distinction here between anxiousness and someone who might have uh, an anxiety disorder. So on the one hand, someone who has a medically diagnosed anxiety disorder is someone who has chemical imbalances going on that affects them. Anxiousness, I'm going to distinguish these two, however, anxiousness, on the other hand, is a fear based on what you are unable to control. So if we understand the kind of fear that is being addressed here is this form of anxiousness that many of us might feel at times, suddenly this makes a whole heap more sense for us to read. So for example, if you have been feeling anxious about a relationship with another person and you have fear surrounding this relationship with this other person, your automatic re response then whether intentionally or unintentionally, will be to manipulate that person to try to get them to do what you want. Or if you are feeling a sense of anxiousness or fear about not having enough money to survive, you'll be far less likely to be generous with others. Or if you are fearful and anxious about the way that the world is going, you begin to see that those that we are called to reach suddenly begin seeing them as the enemy. About eight-ish uh, eight years ago, I was facing a mountain of anxiousness in my own life. I had some fairly significant issues at the workplace that I was in, and I felt sick going to work. I felt sick seeing certain people, and I did everything possible to avoid seeing the people that were making me feel this way. And it got to the stage that I just didn't want to see any people and I avoided all social situations that I possibly could. And because of this fear I was feeling, because of what was going on inside of me, this meant I couldn't love people well anymore. I couldn't invest into people anymore because of what was going on inside of me, this fear that I felt deep inside. 
This kind of fear is something that affects your ability to love other people with the kind of agape love that we should be known for as Christians. And strangely, it actually seems that we, uh, that this is even more common in our society than in multiple other contexts throughout the world. Members of the uh, World Health Organization, World Mental Health Survey Consortium, get that for a name, published findings in JAMA Psychiatry, so there's a lot of preamble, where they discovered that Australia and New Zealand, which are both considered uh, high-income countries, they had the highest lifetime prevalence rates, about 8%, of generalised anxiety disorder in the world. On the other hand, Nigeria only saw 0.1% of their population with generalised anxiety disorder. There's something collectively within our society that is causing us to live with a heightened sense of fear and anxiety in our world. And the thing that is underlying all of this is our desire to be in control. For most of us, we have grown up knowing a certain sense and level of control in our lives. We can have control over our careers, which finance our lives, which provides the things that we need, and we can control our own lives in multiple ways. But increasingly, it can feel like we are losing control of what's going on around us. After a pandemic a few years ago, where the world shut down, after the rising cost of living, the rate of technological change, global tension, and our ability to see all of this on phone screens, all of these things can make us feel like we're losing control when we have been used to having control, and that can cause us collectively to have a, uh, an increased sense of anxiety in our society. When it comes to the rate of technological change in particular. This is something that has made me feel a sense of nervousness and probably a sense of anxiousness in myself. I'm part of a pastor's group on Facebook, and in this pastor's group on Facebook, uh, someone asked the, questions, uh, asked the question, what are your thoughts on using AI to write a sermon? For those of you who are unfamiliar with AI, it means artificial intelligence, and has grown hugely popular throughout this year. So essentially what AI is, it's robots writing things for people. That's the general understanding. Think Terminator, if you're thinking of, uh, of AI. Someone responded this. I asked ChatGPT to write a sermon on the evils of, write, of using AI to write sermons. So ChatGPT, this is a program that uses AI. So this person got robots to write a sermon on the evils of using robots to write a sermon. And I'm going to read you some of the response. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, today I stand before you to shed light on a topic that calls for our attention and discernment. In this age of technological advancement, we find ourselves faced with a profound challenge, the temptation to utilise artificial intelligence to write our sermons. While AI has its benefits, we must pause and consider the potential evils it poses when it comes to matters of faith and worship. 
The Holy Scriptures teach us that preaching is a sacred responsibility, a task entrusted to us by God Himself, and as ministers of the Word, we are called to speak the truth, guided by the Holy Spirit and our deep connection with God. Preaching is not merely a skill to be automated, but an act of divine communion. When we rely on AI to craft our sermon sermons, we risk diminishing the vital elements of human connection. Sermons are not meant to be mere recitations of words, but rather a bridge between the divine and the human heart. Our congregation seeks not just information, but also inspiration, comfort, and guidance that can only flow them from the authentic presence of a preacher who is attuned to their needs, and it continues and continues. The reason that this had me feeling a little bit of anxiousness inside is because it's actually really good. AI, writing about the evils of using AI for a sermon. If you want the full version, it is quite good. <laughs> and you can ask me for it, uh, for it afterwards. With things, tools like this, this would have been written genuinely in about three seconds. Technology is advancing very, very quickly and sometimes I can feel a little bit nervous about this because that's something that's totally out of my control. I can't affect the rate of technological change. I couldn't affect the pandemic, really. I'm unable to affect many of the global tensions that we have in our world. And this can cause us to feel like a, a sense of anxiousness because we lack control. The society and culture that we live in, it's actually a breeding ground for feeling fearful due to a lack of control. And there's a sociologist named Edwin Friedman who defined five aspects of what I would call a fearful culture. The first one, reactivity. So being reactive to the things of this world as they happen. Second one, herding instinct. So going along with the wider whole rather than thinking for ourselves. Third one is blame displacement. So the idea that everything that is happening in this world that is wrong is someone else's fault. Fourth, a quick fix mentality. So the thought that everything in the world is able to be fixed quickly and easily, regardless of how nuanced the issue is. And the fifth thing is a lack of well-differentiated leadership. So having leaders who lack the ability to have clear lines between themselves and the issues of the people that they're leading. And I would say that these five points are very, very prevalent within our society today. And so it would be very easy for us to buy into the fearful culture that we live in uh, together. But Scripture offers us a better way than living in fear. The command, do not fear or do not be afraid, is repeated more than any other command in the whole world. Bible. It's repeated 365 times, which makes sense if fear is the opposing force to love. If fear is the opposing force to love, and love is the most important thing for us to have as a foundation as followers of Jesus, it's so, it makes so much sense why this, is, uh, why this is the most common command. To eliminate fear... It could be easy for us to think, I just need to try harder to get rid of fear and anxiousness in my life. 
But that's not the point at all. That's not what John says here at all. Rather, the point of John's words are very simple. Grow into a person of agape love, and fear will not exist there. Grow in agape towards others. The mistake that we make when we think of this love is that we can think of love as a feeling, but agape love is more than a feeling. It's a choice that we make, and it's demonstrated through words and actions as it was by Jesus. John teaches us that growing into a person of agape love isn't based on feeling a certain thing for another person, It's based on us following the the example of Jesus who went to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Agape love is doing. Even in 1 Corinthians 12, we see what agape love is to look like. Love is patient. It's a doing thing. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And this is the love that we have been called into as followers of Jesus, this agape love. These are doing words that we can put into practice at any stage, regardless of what we might be feeling inside. The great thing that we see in John's writing is that it's clear that we're not supposed to be perfect at this yet. But this is something that we should be growing in. We should know more and more every single day uh, to be a person growing in agape love. And so this morning, what I just want to do is I just want to leave you with one very simple question. Is, are you growing as a person of agape love? Are you growing as a person of agape love? Turn to the person next to you and say, I agape you. (laughs) Turn to the other person and say, I agape you. Hey, can we stand together? Just as the team comes up right now and we prepare to worship, I just want to pray that we might become a people who grow in agape together, who genuinely love one another, not in a superficial way, not in a conditional way, but genuinely with the sort of love that Jesus called us into, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for us when he came to this earth and died for us on the cross. And so King Jesus... I do pray, would you grow us as a people of agape? I just really want to ask for my brothers and sisters right now, King of Heaven, if there is anyone here this morning who has real fear in their heart over a relationship, over financial troubles, over the things that we see in this world. Even if there is someone here this morning who has fear of just tomorrow, 
high King of heaven, I really do pray in the name of Jesus, would you remove that? Would you pluck that out and you, would you replace it with your love? What an incredible truth that we see in your word, that we don't need to be slaves to fear anymore. And what an incredible example that we see that when we aren't slaves to fear and we are captivated by love, that there will be transforming power taking place, not just in our community, but also as people look on. And so remove fear, replace it with agape love. Help us to look to Jesus as the example through his life, his death and his resurrection. So we thank you, King Jesus, for your example. We ask that you'll continue to grow us more into your image in Jesus' name.